Derek Adams of Time Out called this movie a hammed up version of the old chestnut about the ventriloquist who is taken over by his dummy. New York Times critic Vincent Canby felt it was neither eerie nor effective. And letterboxed user Howling Man said, maybe I just like it because I was raised with media telling me to be spooked of talking dolls, like Twilight Zone or Goosebumps told me. Just something insidious about ventriloquism. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of magic. Re-re-reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods Podcast. Greetings, starfighters. Yeah, greetings, you bunch of staff fuckers. Whoa, easy there, Fats. Oh, is that Fats? Is is yours also named Fats? Ventriloquy, something that doesn't work on podcasts. Welcome to Ruined Childhood. You know, Dan, I had I had a um a radio show in college, and on that show I had a sidekick. Did I? Did you know about this? It sounds vaguely familiar. I had a sidekick named Montgomery Sniffles, and he was a mute clown. <laughs> and I actually had a guy wearing this old, dirty clown suit I found on eBay and not say a word. And he was just there with me. And it was so funny to me. And I didn't care what anybody else thought about it. So uh, I think that that's the same thing about as uh, doing like a ventriloquist act on a uh, on a podcast that's audio only. Yeah. So so anyway, um, it, it's ruined childhood. So anyway, yeah. No, uh, we you know we're talking about the movie Magic. Don't you so anyway? We're talking me? about the movie Magic. Yeah. No, I don't know what to do with that, John. I don't. You you had a sidekick on a radio hey. show that was a did you say a mute clown? Yeah. Correct. And you actually had someone yeah. there with you wearing a clown costume when you did the radio show. Yes. So that person just sat there and did not, the audience was not necessarily aware of them uh, other than you're referencing them. Yes. But it could have made, there, there could have just as well been nobody there do i i just i'm grasping this okay okay right so okay so dan here's the thing like why do it with nobody actually there how is that funny it's only funny and i don't care if it's only funny to me it's only funny if there's actually somebody there and then if somebody like asks the people at the radio station does he is there actually a clown there they could be like yeah it's just a guy sitting there next to him. You know what? In I a dirty used clown I suit. I see your point. Ooh, used clown suit. That's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, that is that's there's all sorts of things wrong. I don't I don't know if eBay It's the opposite of seller like, door. I'm sorry, I don't see that on eBay. That's more of like a Craigslist thing. And Dan, this was two thousand one. Oh, uh, Okay, yeah, that would make, make so. So yeah. eBay, eBay did not have the, um, the the high watermark that it does today. 
It was it was kind of anything goes. It was the wild west of the internet back then. It yeah. really was. This was I think pre Craigslist. I uh, oh 2000, 2000 oh yeah maybe I'm like trying to think of when I became aware of Craigslist and then just kind of yeah. subtract five years. So it's like when did I become yeah. aware of something? All right, so it was probably around for like five years before that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, yes, as you were saying. This is Ruined Childhoods. You are Dan, I am John, so on and so forth. We're talking about a movie uh, on, on this episode from 1978, uh, directed by Sir Richard Attenborough, Magic. And Dan, was this your first time seeing this? Yes. Was it yours? Uh, this was my first time actually even hearing about this movie. Which, and I mean, it wasn't the first time I had heard of it because I had seen it in various, you know, like running through different streaming services and seeing it. Mm. Like, I think I'd been aware of it, but I wasn't aware of it enough to even know that it was directed by Academy Award winning director of Gandhi, Sir Richard Attenborough. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's definitely somebody with a pretty strong track record and kind of this one that just, I don't know, it, like the more I was reading about it, the more I was like, oh, yeah, people knew about this. And I think that it was one of those movies that for people, you know, in the I guess you could probably say like, you know, uh, eight to you know, 15-year-old range in 1978, this was probably a, uh, a, I don't know, it seems like a memorable movie for them. I Just from re hearing about what people have kind of, how people reacted to it, uh, is that it was one that, like, you know, kids would think, oh, okay, that's cool, a ventriloquist movie, and then uh, kind of being mortified by it. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me of of some other movies, and and we'll get into it more after the synopsis, just because it'll it'll make sense more. But it did, uh, it did, and of course, uh, you know th that age range that you said that kind of tween. I don't know why I said that age range? Yeah, tween, toy. Yeah, I mean, y y spoiler alert: uh, and and Margaret shows her nipple. Um, That's true. Yes. So. And so naturally, but it won, snap out of it, Dan. It won. I'm. I'm. It's a memorable moment in the movie. Uh, there are lot lots of memorable moments in this movie, though, and I'm really surprised that I hadn't heard of it sooner. That it doesn't have more of a uh, a cult following. It it is very much a. This is a cult movie. Well, uh, you know, I think that this is one of those movies that like, you, you know, there's there's podcasts like the the Blank Check podcast where they kind of go through an entire like a director's entire filmography beat by beat. And I feel like this is one where they would get to that and it would kind of be one of the more interesting episodes because it is just like a why is this not as memorable as maybe some of uh, Richard Attenborough's other films Um I mean, he was certainly uh, a a very well-known director with um, A Bridge Too Far. I guess this was one of his earlier ones before, like, really picking up. But like you said, Gandhi, A Chorus Line. Uh, I I loved uh, his film Chaplin. Chaplin, uh, With yeah. Robert Downey Jr. Um, 
I don't know. I feel like there was just a lot that uh, this should have stood out for. And uh, I don't know. I I think that maybe because it was a horror movie. It's it's such an interesting it's such an interesting movie because it's a horror movie. It's a comedy. It's got so much. There's a lot there to me. It's. It's really interesting because you have you know, Sir Richard Attenborough, who uh, you know in his acting career he plays one uh, uh, you know a primary uh, role in The Great Escape, for example. Yeah. Uh, later in his career is uh, Jurassic is Jur- in Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah. And um, I'm like the last name is Hammond. I almost said Reggie Hammond, but uh, no, that's Eddie Murphy in Forty Eight Hours. Yes. Uh, uh, you know Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. So. Yeah accomplished and he won the academy award for gandhi you know within like five years later so um but yet this movie is so well also okay so you think about a movie like gandhi and when i think about gandhi i think of it as being very like vast and and complete and complex and uh you know i think that there's a lot of uh elements of gandhi that put it up there in a a different light whereas this movie is very enclosed you're only with a few characters you're in you're mostly in uh an isolated place physically or emotionally and uh, like when he's in like a crowded nightclub the sweat pouring off of his face. It's a very intimate look. And uh, I mean, the, the movie that I think this is closest to, Oh, are you going to say what I'm about to say? I'm so excited to, to find out. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, he was very Rupert Pupkin-y, you okay. know, King of comedy. Yeah. Which De Niro was uh, considered for the role. Oh, okay. De- Why, what, De- what did you think I was going to say? Well, no, a, 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 a movie that's a derivative of that. Well, I didn't know if, I actually didn't think you were going to say it because okay. I don't, I, but I, it made me think of, of Joker, which by extension oh, is thinking comedy. about King of comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, it totally acknowledged, but Joker kind of being the, you know, in thinking of, how does this movie play, you know, in 2022 that that's kind of the closest connection I could find to it in recent, uh, in recent oh, memory. Oh yeah, of course. But that really is just King of comedy. Right. But anyway. Yes. Yes. It, yes. So why don't I give a little synopsis because this is one where I'd be surprised if very many of the listeners have, have seen this one. Uh, it certainly isn't, on the top of most people's lists, probably. But anyway, probably. Uh, here's here's what I put together for this one. I I didn't want to give away too much because I ah, you know now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, do I want to even say all of these things that I say, or do I want to just give like a more of like a one or two sentence synopsis? I, okay, I'm just going to. I, yeah, okay, I'm here's like, what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to read up until the point where things get crazy, and I'm going <laughs> to essentially just be like, and that's where things get crazy. Yes, okay? I think that's the right decision. Go okay. for it. 
Though his temper is small, Corky's talents are quite vast. However, they come at a cost. Having grown up very much in the background of other people's lives, Corky studied under a magician named Merlin, who believes that Corky is the next great illusionist. However, when Corky first tries out a card trick at an open mic night, he gets booed until he raves against the crowd, but he manages to burst onto the nightclub scene once he incorporates his dummy, Fats. Along with Fats, Corky woos his audiences, especially his new agent, Ben Green. Ben believes Corky's... Ben believes in Corky's talents, but Corky's temper prohibits him from getting a show at NBC. But it's Corky's fault. He refuses to take a psych evaluation. In an effort to clear his head, Corky takes a cab to where he grew up and notices that his old high school crush's house has a room for rent. After giving the cabbie money to not tell anyone he's out there, Corky rents the room and reunites with Peggy. The two reminisce, and she is quite taken by his act with fats. He shows Peggy some card tricks and gets and things get quite intense. They end up sleeping together, which enrages Fats. That's right, there's something off about Fats, and that's where things get crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ooh. So ah. this movie is about uh, dissociative identity disorder. Yes. Uh, that's that's something that we certainly should be talking about. It's it's about uh, you, you know this person who is troubled using this ventriloquist dummy to act out this other side of himself and be this this part of him that's kind of overtaking him. So uh, things get crazy. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's uh, a couple other movies that popped into my mind, and you know it's there's I don't. I don't want to talk about a lot of the scenes because I don't want to ruin them for people who yeah. haven't seen the movie because it's really something there. I had moments where I was just like jaw dropped. Um, and there are, mo there are moments I think are intentionally very effective. And then there are moments yeah. that I think are very unintentionally hilarious. Uh, and I, it made me think so. It, yes, it made me think of like, you know, that aspect of you know, King of Comedy, and, uh, you know, and then by extension, it's it's like, you know, third cousin twice removed Joker. Uh, yeah. Uh, but also like Little Shop of Horrors, because fats like in Little Shop of Horrors, Seymour doesn't uh, find success or love until he uh, you know, makes a deal with Audrey too, and yeah. starts feeding it humans. Uh, so specifically thought, humans that he wants out of the picture. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it made me think, especially you know, yeah, the scene with uh Duke and, and Margaret's character's husband. Yeah. Uh, just real quick, Anthony Hopkins plays uh Corky, and Margaret plays Peggy. Um. We have. Oh, uh, uh, Burgess Meredith as yeah. Ben Green, uh, Ed Lautner as Duke, and uh, I guess you can say Anthony Hopkins also as Fats. Which I thought was great. At first, I wasn't sure if Anthony Hopkins was also doing the voice of Fats, and you can hear yeah. it, but... Uh, I I thought that was that was great. Um, the and the other movie it it brought to mind was Fight Club. Mm, okay, D dissociative you know personality. Yeah disorder um that that whole I idea but yeah it really it, it gave me strong uh little shop vibes also because when um especially the scene when uh um corky talks about it, 
about like running away with uh oh god i can't remember peggy? Mark. peggy yeah thank you yeah uh it talked about running away with peggy uh and not taking fats and yeah and that's and and that's when things get really crazy yeah um it is i mean when do when do things get crazy things get things just keep getting crazier and crazier uh burgess meredith is just wonderful in this uh, also his name his character's name is ben green you have to imagine they were hoping to cast someone perhaps more jewish perhaps perhaps just uh, a, it's an it's an it's an agent I don't know. Yeah, well, I, 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 I it's funny though because for a while I couldn't tell, like, if that was just his la- if his last name because when Anthony Hopkins says it, he says, "Oh, that that that's Ben Green, that's Ben Green." And like, <laughs> is he just gangrene? What? Well, and this leads me to my biggest question about this movie: Why does Anthony Hopkins talk like that if he's from like upstate New York? They explain it. Uh, there's just one moment where the and the the line is, and I'm quoting: "His father was a limey." So what? And they moved. He grew up with a father who had a British accent, and they moved. Yeah, look, I don't. I know plenty of people who have like a parent who's British or like has an accent, and they'd have no accent. Well, okay, <laughs> maybe. I mean, look, that's something which, and maybe there's more in the novel. But this was adapted by William Goldman um, from right. his novel. William Goldman, who you would know from The Princess Bride, Princess Bride, yeah, uh, all the president's uh, men. Uh, All the President's Men uh, also adapted Misery, uh, Stand By Me. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, William William Goldman, uh, A Marathon Man was another one of his. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, William Goldman, no slouch. No slouch. No slouch. Uh, And so I imagine there's more background in that you get some... You get some background, and they have the, the flashbacks to his childhood. right. Are so interestingly done. Like I, lo- the style of this. What what I love about it is is going back to like when you think of Richard Attenborough and you think of movies like Gandhi or yeah. Chaplin, you think of these big sprawling epics, life right. stories of of these people. And as you said, magic is not just so much more intimate, but it's less like David lean, uh, like Lawrence of Arabia. Like I think of Gandhi, I think of the double VHS cassette, which, Oh yeah. Which I mean, that meant like that was serious. If it was a double VHS, like this was a, this was not like some silly comedy. This was a movie to be taken seriously. So I, I that's I think of Richard Attenborough and then this movie has all these weird choices those those flashbacks that have that like they're shot with that I don't know that there's just that bit of I don't know light I don't know what you would call it but like that filter where there's just like this extra like light uh and it I mean it's implying flashback I know okay but well it, what so the way that it's done is that this is during his like taxi cab ride through his past and he goes to like his childhood home and he's telling the cab driver like you know like oh i grew up here and everything and what you see from like what he's seeing is his experience growing up there just in a moment of like him whittling on like the porch which 
I believe implies that he built fats. Yes. Uh, yeah. And because um, one thing that I read and I couldn't I didn't remember this in the movie said that uh, Merlin gave him fats. And I was like, but didn't he whittle him? Anyway, I'm pretty sure he made fats. Yeah. And I'm. Pr- uh, yeah. Pretty sure he made fats. Right. So it shows him whittling. And then there's a thing where he's like at his high school and it, uh, you know, sees it shows him there and everything. And then. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But he's just like, oh, he's oh, like he's an awkward kid you can tell that and he's less as they show his brother like playing catch with their father yeah. and clearly the the brother is favored and is the more athletic one and he's just a you know a little weird kid who's yeah. whittling a dummy um but they're and they they give you a little bit i think i would have liked a little more of that though i don't know because i i just like that those hints that his childhood wasn't great and that he yep. was that kind of kid that no one really understood. Right. Which is kind of like, yeah, okay, troubled person in a movie 101. And right. uh, but I you you started talking about this talking about the way that it's shot and the and the choices that Attenborough made uh in filming this and I feel like the things that stood out to me were like those shots where it would just show like fats sitting in a chair with like dramatic lighting and it you feel really uncomfortable. Yes. Because you feel like this this dummy is alive and like judging. You're and, like, waiting thinking. for it. You're waiting yeah. for the slightest move. As as you're just getting it's like the shot when like uh, when they're having sex and yeah. they have you see fat sitting in the chair and you're just like waiting for the slightest turn of his head and on the edge of your seat. Uh, and also sound is used incredibly well to build yeah. tension. Uh, and like there's one scene where there's this clock in the background, like grandfather oh, yeah. clock and then crickets in, yeah. in another scene, just like. The, yeah, the clock is when uh, is when Corky is doing this card trick with uh, with Peggy and try like concentrating so hard to get it right, and it's it's a very uh, I guess non traditional trick where it's just like how could this possibly be? It's one of those things where you're just like that's impossible. But the clock ticking where he's trying to constant where she's trying to like send him through like telepathy the card that she picked or whatever. Well, and she's he's just, like go ahead. She's she's going along with it, but he this is after he has like yelled at her to like Oh, cuz she's having fun harder. at the beginning. She's she's yeah. just like, "Oh, this is fun. This is cute. This is a this is an interesting date that yeah. that's happening." And and he's just like, "Shut the fuck up and focus." Yeah. Exactly. It's very intense. And yeah, and you just hear like the clock ticking and it's like, "Oh my god." So yeah, the the cinematography, the sound design extremely effective. And I think that what hurts this movie is the silliness of the ventriloquist dummy uh, in the moments where things turn into a horror movie. And it, it really doesn't like match up a little. It's like a little jarring in some ways. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, 
so I for me, and maybe it's just like the mood I was in when I watched uh when I watched it. I watched it in two sittings, but I watched I watched the point where things get bonkers. Uh, like I watched that all in one sitting. Okay. And it it I I appreciated it for the absurdity. I felt that everything I, I felt that everything throughout the movie was just uh, a little bit over the top. I thought Hopkins did an amazing job of of selling it. Yeah, I, I mean the the scene. Uh, so like the scene we were just talking about. There's the scene where he's sitting with Ben and Ben. Ben is on to him. Ben wants him to get help. And oh yeah, and Ben's like okay. I you stay quiet for five minutes. Yeah, don't speak as fats for five minutes. Yeah, don't. Yeah, and and he, and he keeps on like saying like, all right, all right. Well, how long has it been? And he's like, twenty seconds. Twenty seconds. Yeah, <laughs> and I feel I like could do this whole night. Yeah, <laughs> two minutes I, later, I can't do it. <laughs> that's an incredible scene. It's really really amazing, and uh, the fact that it's just like these two fantastic actors just like really giving it their all with a world-class director and incredible sound design and cinematography like it's a powerful scene in what could easily be a just completely silly movie yeah right yeah it goes uh i I think it goes just as far as it as it can yeah. In in every in every direction it stretches itself. I think it goes just about as far as it can uh before it stops being entertaining. It's absurd. It's absurd. There are moments there's one moment in particular that I'm thinking of that's so ridiculous and absurd and I don't want to give it away because I just I loved it. I loved it because I was totally in mm-hmm. the mood to watch that like type of uh movie kind of like the room but but like with you know actually well made oh okay but just like having those there were certain moments in it that where i could imagine being in a in a theater at a midnight showing yeah yeah and honestly like you know Anne margaret what an interesting choice for this role and she does great She's yeah. absolutely fantastic. Uh, I think that um, Ed Lautner uh, does an, an amazing job. I mean, like, if you don't know who Ed Lautner is, like, you take you Google him and take one look at his face and be like, that yeah. guy. Yeah. And, and you'll just know, like, oh, he's exactly the type of person who would work in, what is it, like, sheet metal or whatever it is, whatever kind of, like, you know, uh, blue-collar job out in like upstate New York or something. Yeah. And he's, he's great in that position. Somebody who goes fishing on their lake that they live by. Totally, totally works. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Totally, totally works. Um, and has some, peaked in high school. What's that? Peaked in high school. Peaked, peaked in high school. Yeah. He's that, uh, it makes me think of gross point blank. Like the guy who, uh, has the BMW dealership. Of course. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's a really, uh, fascinating movie that does go in all these 
directions and I don't know what the intention was with it. If it was to make something that would be taken seriously or to make something that would kind of, I don't know, like cash in on the kind of horror. I don't want to say horror craze of the seventies, but it feels like a very 1970s horror film concept. Yeah, you know, I think that there's probably some element to that. I think that also uh, there's something to be said about taking a subject matter like ventriloquism, which, you know, there had been other movies about ventriloquist dummies and things like that before. But I think that it like maybe had been a while and just kind of was like, this is the right time to do this type of thing. And I think that there was also a push to like really uh, make it feel like a serious move. And I know that like Gene Wilder wanted to play this role or like was being considered, but uh, Richard Attenborough really wanted a more serious actor. And, uh, you know, this is certainly before... Anthony Hopkins was the Anthony Hopkins that we know. I think Silence of the Lambs really uh, put him put him on the scene in in a major major way. But well, uh, I mean, this is coming just a couple of years before Elephant Man. Which well, was, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, that was. But I, I I think this is the period where where Hopkins was, and I I. I'm I'm just either speculating and going off of some distant memory, but that I believe he was dealing with uh, alcoholism. Oh. And that was I, I I believe that was kind of what took him what what took him at, like out of acting for for a while. Like you don't right. see him in as much throughout the throughout the 80s. Yeah. So I that might have had something to do with it. Again, I am I am speculating, but I, I know he had um his struggles. He, yeah, he you know, I think that he was a uh, a, was really great for the role. Uh, his accent threw me the entire time. Like, justify it as much as you you want, but like, if you want to make it seem like he actually grew up out there, then he's gonna have to Americanize the way he speaks, uh, because the way that Fat speaks feels American. Uh, it doesn't feel as, you know, as foreign as, because what Anthony Hopkins, Welsh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I feel like Fats, you you lose a lot of that in, in Fats's voice. And uh, it's, but otherwise, like, like we're saying, it's, it's really enjoyable. Uh, we certainly, I, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say that I recommend that people watch this because it really is fascinating. Uh, we both watched it on the Canopy app, which if you have a, a library membership, then you're good to go. But uh, yeah, what a, what, a, what a fascinating movie. And like I said, Anne-Margaret is incredible. Not somebody I would have ever expected for something like this. Of course, she reunites with Burgess Meredith uh, just a uh, few years later yeah. in, uh, <laughs> in Grumpy Old Men. Yeah, and that's right. Grumpy-er Old Men. And yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. I, I have my thoughts about kind of what our what our homework is uh, on this podcast. But Dan, I'm wondering what you thought uh, could be done with a movie like Magic. Well, as I as I said before, uh, this is a movie that I would love to see in, you know, your, your midnight showings, 
uh, you know, drive-ins. This is a I, I, this is a movie I would love to see people discover, yeah. and uh, like I I would love to have that uh, in the theater experience watching this movie and just hearing and seeing people's reactions when uh when ver- at various uh moments in in the movie so uh, that's one that's one direction i would go with it i thought i was thinking about a play there are moments in it that do feel very very much like they could work as a play but then again uh there's also a burgess meredith versus anthony hopkins water fight that yeah. i would just hate to lose uh <laughs> not to mention oh my god how great is it that like so the lake that like this house is on up in the catskills the snapping turtles the oh the, yeah the the, the I loved all that. You don't often hear, you don't often get snapping turtles as being like the the threat, but the threat there it was. It was I have to cancel. They're snapping turtles. Uh, <laughs> so I, I love that, but I I do feel like it 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 could potentially work as a play. I think it would be interesting as a play because you would have the you would have uh, the lines pre recorded. I imagine you would have Fats's lines pre-recorded by the, or oh, you yeah. would I have yeah. somebody in the wings with a microphone. Well, yeah, or yeah, you could. I yeah. think that that actually is more fun to have yeah. somebody in the wings because then you're you know you you don't have the same thing every every night, and it was. Uh, I think it, it, you could do some interesting things with it. I don't know if I would go as far as to say musical, but I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, we all know that there are people out there who love taking uh, campy movies and adapting them into musicals a la Toxic Avenger, Evil Dead. Right. So right, right. I, I, I could see something like this being made, but it doesn't have that cult following that uh, that those movies have. Yeah. So I, I that's what I would like to see. Uh, I don't know that there's. I don't know that there's a a way to uh I don't know that you could really like remake it. Um I I don't know that the treatment of mental illness uh being being taken in this in this manner and being used for for laughs and and scares mm-hmm. I that that's not going to play as much you you would definitely need to to tread lightly in that department uh i i could see some type of series being adapted from it uh, uh about I, I mean take the novelty of a ventriloquist getting getting famous but having a um you know, following this person as they try to maintain their their fame, but also are struggling with this illness. And if they're afraid of losing their their job, they're afraid of losing everything. But the struggle just gets harder and harder. Yeah. If there is a way to do that in a in a respectful uh, and truthful manner, I'd be down with it. But yeah, no, really, I would just like like if I if I had the money I would just promote this and uh, you know, whatever tore it around and be like, you know, magic is coming to your town. Are you ready for, are you ready for fats? The, the dummy? <laughs> well, uh, I do want to acknowledge the, the movies that have 
you know, come out and I guess TV shows too that uh, honor the tradition of ventriloquist dummies and uh, whether it's horror or some sort of ventriloquist dummy having its own life kind of thing. I mean, uh, there's the Adrian Brody movie Dummy that came out like, 15 years ago something like that oh yeah that there was that uh there's the the great segment in the movie the 10 with winona Ryder, where uh it's a vignette where uh she is supposed to be she gets married to a ventriloquist but ends up uh having a romantic fling with the dummy because uh as we know from movies like magic Dummies seem to always be making jokes about sex in the acts. And uh, in in the 10... Oh, no, she... That's right. In the movie, she's getting married to this guy, but ends up stealing a ventriloquist's dummy that they see on like their honey, on their honeymoon and ends up uh, sleeping with the, with the dummy. <laughs> and it's, it's so great the way it's done because like in the... Um, in the club scene, the dummy like picks her out from the crowd and makes a joke and pardon my expression, but like about it's like big wood cock. And then like after the show, she like goes backstage to like meet the ventriloquist, but actually is there to see the dummy. And then she like takes the dummy inside and she goes, you still want to show me the big wood cock? And it's like Winona Ryder's so good that I just absolutely, like she commits to it so hard. And um, anyway, I uh, really appreciate the comedic turn that, uh, that that takes where it's like this dummy does have a life of its own. And then there have, of course, been like shows like, I don't know, Are You Afraid of the Dark that have, of course, done this kind of thing and whatever. Um, sure, there's a Goosebumps yeah, I, th- I think there was something in the IMDb trivia about like you know the inspiration, the R.L. Stein's like inspiration for something with this and stuff. So n- wouldn't be a big shock. And uh, but yeah, no, I you I f- I feel like I would want to see a a play that is a I think adapted from this, but I wouldn't want it to be a horror. Because when it becomes a horror, that's where things get a little, like when it goes like horror, horror, that's where things become a little, I don't know, like goofy. And I feel like in the moments where you just have the the dummy lit in a particular way and the sound in a particular way, that's something that can have great effect um, if you do just have a... Uh, a play about a ventriloquist or magician who does, uh, you know, ventriloquism in their act. And they uh, maybe can only express certain things through the dummy because the way that I see, I see you're holding up your finger. Hold on one second. But the way that I was first seeing uh, fats was less of an extension of like uh of identity, but more of like uh, Corky's like inner critic, the the part of himself that uh, is trying to put himself down, and uh, that's trying to put the blame back on him for not being successful. And I thought that that could have been a really interesting angle, where it's not uh, dissociative identity disorder, whereas in, instead it's you know using this. 
uh, dummy as a way to reflect uh, his own like personal demons towards himself. And I feel like there's something that could be done with that where like you could still have something like with his agent and maybe he does go out to the Catskills or somewhere and he does have that like moment with his agent. It, this could easily be a like two person play where you just have like it's really just the two of them uh, aside from maybe some like club scenes where it's just auxiliary people, maybe somebody introducing or, you know, something like that. But, uh, you know, that scene where he's just like, I bet you can't talk just yourself for five minutes. Like that's one of the more impactful moments for me. And it's like, I think that there's something that could be done. Well, that scene and the mind, the like, you know, the, the mind reading card yeah. scene between Corky and Peg, uh, would play amazingly on stage. Uh, yeah. And yeah. horror, horror on stage doesn't, tend to doesn't tend to work in terms of like scares uh but you can definitely build up the tension and like you said use lighting um and sound a lot of what attenborough does in this uh could be used for the for you know sure to make a play work no what i was thinking of was um so another thing that this brought to mind was and i'm gonna go back to my days back back long ago before uh, becoming a teacher when I was working with a sketch comedy group and we were writing and trying to, and to, you know, working on developing some scripts for pilots. And uh, one of the scripts was uh, a, one of the characters in one of the scripts was a ventriloquist or a puppeteer really because he Uh worked on a uh children's tv show he wasn't Mm -hmm. seen in it but the whole backstory was that this character was a really gifted performer who had crippling straight stage fright uh uh from from a traumatic experience in in his high school years and he is still a tremendous performer, but only with the puppet, which mm. looks just like him. Oh, okay. and we did what's funny. Like we did, we shot some demo scenes for it and I played that character. So okay. we had a puppet that was made to look like me and right. just reminded me of the scenes where Fats and Corky are dressed alike. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, that was what we did. That was kind of what we were trying to do, but not in a... There was definitely something, uh, uh, you know, a little off kilter uh, about it, but not not to this extent. Right. Um, yeah. But it was funny. It brought me, brought me back to that. So when you said, like, someone who really can only communicate certain things... Yeah, with the use of the puppet. That's an interesting. That's a really interesting concept, and uh, I that would be something be like that would be something really cool to explore with a uh, with a stage play. And sure, in fact, I have seen uh, plays where an actor is they're on stage and they're acting against a, a voice with uh, with a voice. And the one I'm thinking of, it was pre the voice was pre-recorded and it was a, it was a Ray Fiennes was in it. It was a one act at Lincoln center. And he was, I forget who the character was that he was talking to, but she was, I don't know if was she it was, Hobie Doyle. Was 
yeah would would it would that it, would were, that so it were so simple. simple would that it were so simple uh yes Tripping hobart me. hobart uh <laughs> yeah um no it was amazing like amazingly intense ray fine's performance so yeah so magic ultimately like my my goal for this is just that people see it so if you're into that type of thing, you've, if you've yeah. listened to us talk about it, I think you know what you're getting into now. Uh, you know, it's going to be weird and, and creepy and fun. Yeah, uh, this is one that I'm really glad that I have now seen. Uh, and so thank you for that, Dan. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a wild ride. It's, you know, yes. under two hours and it's uh Got just like great performances, great everything. Uh, some of it might be a little silly, but that's okay. And You're also, for, it's it's very good, much it, of its time. Yeah, it would be a great slumber party movie. Oh yeah, I think so. Great, great slumber party yeah. movie. So yeah, if you're having a slumber party or pajama party, yeah, uh, watch Magic. And hey, Dan, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to one of our. Uh, our Instagram followers, Yanzi, if you're Yanzi. listening, uh, I we just enjoyed the message that you sent about uh, the the Australianness uh, about Aust- Australians, <laughs> uh, the the pronunciation of Baz Luhrmann, which, uh, as he says, is actually short for Barry, and it's the Australian like nickname for Barry, and uh, kind of like how uh, for Sharon the nickname is Shaz, 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 uh, which is pretty cool. And uh, he uh, was was pretty. He was with me with the Tony Collette thing, but argued that uh, Ben Mendelsohn is who he thinks is the most Australian-looking actor, male actor. Um, so I, uh, I mean, I still think it's Hugo Weaving. Uh, I see. The thing is, when I think of Ben Mendelsohn, I, uh, I don't know. I think about some American characters. He's like, I don't know. Well, what like, was I the think first that- thing you saw him in? Because that was. I, I engaged in the in the back and forth in in the dialogue and for me to, like Hugo Weaving works because the first movie I saw Hugo Weaving in was Adventures of Priscilla Queen of the Desert That's what which I was is so Australian. I, I think that it's just like his it's the cheekbones especially but uh, the thing is for Ben Mendelsohn it's not the first movie that I saw him in but it's the first thing that I like rem- that he was like oh I. I'm recognizing him by name because I've seen him in so many things without realizing who he was. Um, But it was uh, some HBO show that Jason Bateman did. I forget what it was called. It was a Stephen King uh, thing. Yeah, I forget. But he plays like a detective or something like that and he's American. So I think that because that was the first thing that I saw him in where I was like associating that person with that name. That's the the feeling that I get, but I've certainly seen him in a, a whole lot more. Um, the yeah. the one that and I, I you know uh, leave it off, but I want to you know definitely recommend this because it's a good movie. First uh, first movie that I that I saw him in and definitely like associated and was like oh who's that guy was Animal Kingdom and yes I almost said oh. Animal Crossing but uh. <laughs> no Animal uh, Kingdom uh, Animal Kingdom. Which a great, uh, great Australian crime movie, uh, right? Ben Mendelsohn, Joel Edgerton. Uh, See, I don't know. I remember uh, 
hearing about that movie, I can visualize the poster in my mind, but uh, I haven't actually seen it. So maybe if I had seen that one, it would be a different story for me. If who knows? you all have a thought about who the most Australian-looking actors might be, email us, ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail.com, or you can uh, send us a message on Instagram at ruinedchildhoodspod. All of our socials and all that kind of stuff is in our... Uh, our link tree and our in the show notes. So, Dan, what is the next movie we are doing on this podcast? The next movie we're doing is, I believe, our first animated feature. That's right. Yes. Uh, and we're going to be taking a look at 1997's Princess Mononoke. That's right. Yes. Directed I, by, oh, God. I'm Miyazaki. I, yes. uh, I actually, um, I've seen a bunch of Miyazaki. I have never seen Princess Mononoke, and I'm really excited. So I'm glad that you picked that one. I think that you said maybe it's its... Wait, what year did it come out? Is it its 25th anniversary? 25th anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've never... Uh, I've never seen it and uh, looking forward to, to watching it. And I'm hoping it's kind of my gateway. I, re- I haven't seen any of his movies, so I'm... Well, this is really exciting. Uh, I've certainly, you know, seen my fair share. My neighbor Totoro, I absolutely love. Um, my kiddo loves uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, which, oh, I, I think that's Miyazaki. Um, Spirited Away is absolutely fantastic. And anyway... Uh, the Studio Ghibli films are, you know, they're they're truly, uh, you know, very special, and it's really cool to be able to uh, to talk about it on our next episode after we t- this weird movie, this yeah, man. weird crazy movie, weird but darn didn't I did I ah darn if I didn't enjoy myself so yeah. Well, Dan, as you are taking a trip with a cabbie down memory lane, I wish you a good journey. Good journey. Good journey.